0: Our greatest joy and our greatest pain comes from the same place, relationships. And so I knew if I was going to live life as the Creator intended, then I had to get this right in my life.
1: Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Our stories this week demonstrate the power of relationship and what can happen when we allow God to change our lives through unexpected friendships. We'll hear from Pastor Dr. Darius Daniels and author Ron Hall. Dr. Darius Daniels has always wanted to live a life of purpose. As a young college student, he felt sure he was supposed to go to law school until a friend and mentor helped him see how God could use him to reach others far outside the courtroom. Over the years, Dr. Daniels began to realize that relationships have the power to change our lives. And if we're seeking to live a life of purpose, that journey starts with serving people and lifting each other up.
0: I grew up in a small town in Mississippi, called Kilmichael, Mississippi. The the last census, I think, pegged the town at about 630 people. No stoplights, one full-time police officer, um, one doctor, (laughs) but it was uh, an amazing upbringing. And I would say the size of the town made the town highly relational. It was literally, I mean, you knew the majority of people. In the town, there's this proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child. And my life is really the fruit of some of the relationships that I formed early on in my life in that small town and the impact that those relationships had in in my formation. I went to college with all intents and purposes of going to law school. We had to take classes on political theory. A lot of the political theorists that we were studying, some of them were actually theologians. I started sensing the call, the sense, the urge, the prompting to use my life to serve people in a different way other than the courtroom. When I started seeing the impact that some of these actual political theorists had on shaping our world and shaping the way that people think. Theologians have influenced culture, they've influenced society, and in some way, we're all making different contributions to make the world better and make people better. And so that's when I started sensing the call of God to abandon my law school plans It took me about two years to get to the place where I fully let go of them. But I just got to the point where I knew the way I was supposed to live my life was by serving others through serving the church. I cannot overstate the power of one person's ability to change a life. Sometimes you are planting seeds and you are making an impact and you have no idea the fruit that's going to come from someone else's life later and the impact that you have actually made. There are several all throughout my life. I mean, probably beginning with my dad, that's going to be the first one. But in the book, I talk about a story with one guy, his name is Terrence Alexander, and I met him when I was in college. And by God's providence, he had transferred to my school from another school. And we met, you know, during one of the most difficult seasons of my time and tenure in college. He just, as a friend, he mentored me, coached me, and really he was a thought partner for me as I was trying to sort through the decision to go from law school to abandon my plans to go to law school and to go to seminary. God using him is one of the reasons I'm in the ministry right now and doing this recording with you right now. I came from Mississippi, which was Bible Belt, small. My dad led a smaller church, bivocational. He's a bivocational pastor for the majority of my, my childhood. So I go from that right to New Jersey, and I started interning at this church. While I was at a seminary, part of our requirement was to intern. So I was interning at this church in the inner city. Now, I came from rural Mississippi, and now I'm serving in a church in the inner city in the Northeast. It was a completely different way of life and completely different social realities that people were dealing with. I'll tell you one experience I had, I was was intern and I was working in a number of different departments. So I was working with youth and I was doing some work with Christian education. And I remember one of the classes was just kind of helping people wrap their head around what the Bible was and how to study it. And I remember one lady sitting, looking at me and at the end of class, she came up to me and she said, you know, I'm embarrassed. I said, tell me why? She said, I can't read. And so what I begin to see is the need, one, for an expression of the gospel that did more than address people's morals, but addressed their people's life. I want to plant and lead a church that does more than simply help people with their morals, but helps people change their life. And so that's kind of the name Change Church, was birthed out of that conviction and That's just, that's kind of the heart of our church and what we feel called to do. And I think that's probably one of the reasons we talk so much about relationships, because I don't think you can, I think you can have a high standard of living without doing relationships well, but you cannot have a high quality of life without doing relationships well. Relational intelligence is the ability to define and align your relationships, And so when I say define and align, this is what I mean. I mean, it's possible to give labels to relationships that those relationships don't actually reflect. Just because I call someone a friend doesn't actually make them one. So that's the defining part. So this whole idea of aligning your relationships, it's about aligning your own personal investment and it's about aligning your expectations so that you aren't expecting something consistently from someone who is unable or unwilling to give it that leads to frustration it leads sometimes it leads to pain and betrayal and things of that particular nature and uh, no one is perfect we're not god so there're going to be times where you know we make relational mistakes. But it's one thing to make those kind of mistakes because we're imperfect. It's another thing to make those mistakes because we're naive. There's no area of our life, no area of our life that is not directly or indirectly impacted by our relationships, our physical well-being, our financial well-being, our relational well-being, our spiritual well-being. And I go so far as to say in the book, which I believe, that relationships are purpose partners that at the end of the day, purpose isn't just about the acquisition of things. Purpose is about assisting people in some way. When you carry out your life's purpose, you're going to be adding value to other humans directly or indirectly.
1: Dr. Daniel's book, Relational Intelligence, is available wherever you buy books. We'll be right back with our interview with the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Same Kind of Different as Me right after this message from Jesus Calling. Motherhood. It's a journey like no other, teeming with love, unparalleled dedication, and moments that pierce the very essence of your soul. It's a trek that demands to be celebrated, lauded, and embraced in its entirety. Celebrate the moms in your life this Mother's Day with two beautiful gift books, Jesus Calling for Moms by Sarah Young and Grace for the Moment for Moms by Max Licato. These heartfelt devotionals will remind the moms in your life just how special they are. Jesus Calling for Moms and Grace for the Moment for Moms are available now, where all books are sold.
0: During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for a special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com.
1: In this season, it's important to remember to help the people in our communities by shopping locally, something that's important to Jesus Calling author Sarah Young. Because as she says, I'm very grateful that there are local Christian bookstores committed to bringing the best in Christian resources to cities and towns around the world. So this week, remember to look for Jesus Calling products at your local bookstore. And if you can't get to a local bookstore near you, remember to check online at a favorite local retailer to see if shipping or curbside pickup is available. Ron Hall's life was centered around a successful career as an international art dealer and a passion for his Rocky Top Ranch on the Brazos River. But growing up, he was a poor kid who just wanted to escape poverty. With hard work and determination, he eventually became an investment banker and an international art dealer. But his obsession with success led to rockiness in his marriage, culminating in a confession of infidelity that was ultimately met with forgiveness from his wife, Debbie. It was the power of that forgiveness that opened Ron to a series of circumstances he would have never been able to predict, and ended up in an unlikely friendship between Ron and a homeless man named Denver, who changed Ron's life and the life of an entire city.
2: My name is Ron Hall, and I think most people know me today as an author, screenwriter, and producer of the book Same Kind of Different as Me, of the film of the same name. I run a homeless foundation that we call the Same Kind Foundation, which is named after our book, Same Kind of Different as Me. Some people also know it as the Same Kind of Different as Me Foundation, where we, uh, we try to raise money and, and help the homeless. But for most of my life, for the last 45 years, I've been an international art dealer. And uh, that uh, led me to uh, where I am today. <laughs> My mother was a a Christian woman who took us to church and made us be in Sunday school and church every Sunday, but we never talked about that other than when she woke us up on Sunday morning. She said, it's time to get dressed for Sunday school, and uh, the only excuse for not going was you would have to wake up dead. We were there in church, but church and religion and anything like that, God— jesus nothing like that was talked about in the home i never saw my mother or father pray and uh, i did see my mother reading her sunday school lesson uh, from her bible from her recliner but uh, nothing was ever talked about like that when i was a kid in the world i grew up uh, so poor that i could barely pay attention so <laughs> it was uh I had no ambition, really, uh, to do anything except uh, escape poverty. So I guess it was hunger for things that I didn't have or couldn't have. But, you know, I didn't even know what I didn't have until I was about 12 years old. And at the local skating rink, I met a girl that was from the other side of town. And she liked me and invited me to her birthday party. And so as her mother came to pick me up in a brand new Oldsmobile sport coupe that I had never seen anything like that in my life and drove me to a side of town that I did not know existed because I had never crossed the tracks to that side of town. And all of a sudden, I saw beautiful manicured lawns and big homes and big trees and and beautiful cars parked in driveways and so when i saw what other people were living like i said wow this is what i want you know um so from that day forward i began dreaming of getting to a point where i could own the osmobile sport coupe and where i could live in a home with, with a beautiful manicured lawn and a big home. And, uh, so I began dreaming of those things and, and planning. Truthfully, you know, I, I didn't feel that I was smart because in our high schools I was never encouraged to do anything. In fact, uh, we didn't even have a college counselor in my high school. They made an announcement one day and they said, anybody that wants to go to college uh, needs to be here on Saturday morning to take a test. And, uh, You know, that's the first I knew that you had to take a test to get in college and it was called the ACT test back then and So I showed up that Saturday morning and took the test, and I never knew even how I did on it, but uh, I guess I made it up to get in college. And so I went to talk to the principal, and I said, I wanna go to college, where should I go? And my principal said, well, I really only know two colleges because I went to both of them. That's East Texas State and North Texas State. So I said, well, okay, I guess I'll go to East Texas State. That sounds more interesting. So (laughs) that's how I decided on college. My plan then for success was to go to TCU and marry one of those rich girls. Debbie was not a rich girl. Debbie just happened to be about the poorest girl at TCU financially. But she was rich in many other ways, and she was very rich in spirit. And uh, God knew what he was doing when he put, uh, when he put her into my life. So. Debbie uh, and I were kind of on the same path. She had grown up a lot like me, in church, but, but not a believer. And so we started life together. We were drawn to each other, so we were all about our parties and fun, and we didn't go to church together. I never went to church with her until after we got married. I enjoyed the parties much more than the classes, and so I ended up being drafted into the Army and um, and in the army after I got out of the army I realized that I need to come back and get serious about an education so I came back to TCU Texas Christian University and and there I began to study and I found out that I was actually smarter than I thought I was because I started making good grades and making all A's and I stayed and I got an MBA after I got my undergraduate degree and there uh, then all of a sudden I was uh, offered a really great job as a, an investment banker at a, at a local bank, and through that first week on the job, I was in Houston, Texas, and met an art dealer who was an international art dealer who had just come back from Paris uh, on an art deal, and uh, I said, how do you get a job like that? I've never been to Paris. I would love to go to Paris on, and be able to work there, and he said, well, you, just, you don't get a job like this. You just have to do it. So... Before that day was over, he had talked me into buying a painting uh, that I could not afford. I wrote a hot check for it, and I, then I borrowed the money to cover the hot check, and then I had 90 days to sell it, and within 90 days, I sold the painting and made more than I was making as a banker, and so I just said, ooh, I think I'm going to try this. So I began doing that part-time for four years until I was making more, actually, than the chairman of the board of the banking uh, company that I worked for. So I was an international art dealer. I was traveling the world, buying and selling uh, a lot of great masterpieces that you would recognize in museums. And, uh, you know, I was quite full of myself. I really loved what I was doing. Um, you know, my, I tell people that, you know, my wife and I at the time, we were both, you know, living purpose-driven lives. My purpose in life was chasing the almighty dollar and her purpose in life was chasing the almighty God and our paths took a vastly different uh, uh, direction. I was traveling to Europe uh, four and five times a year. You know, I loved my job. I loved in the being in the international art world and the people that I was dealing with. It was very exciting and I was in beautiful places and doing wonderful things. And But she was very excited about her life as uh as a believer, and in uh, meeting with ladies and discipling them, and uh, uh, being a mentor to them, their spiritual leaders. But you know, as our lives began to really drift apart, the intimacy uh, began leaving because she was chasing hard after God, I was chasing hard after money, and so the intimacy left our marriage. You know, I was very egotistical. I was very proud and, uh, of, of, of what I had accomplished. And so uh, I just felt that I deserved uh, to be intimate uh, with another woman. And so I chose that. When I confessed that to her, she gave me Christ-like forgiveness. She threw my sin as far as the East is from the West and vowed that if I would never do that again, she would never bring it up again, and you know there's a difference between uh, forgiveness and redemption. You know, uh, she forgave me, and she kept her part of the of the bargain. But um, redemption comes from Christ, and and I knew, you know, that I that I was redeemed, that I was forgiven, and uh, that really uh, was it. Was actually ten years later that. Uh, you know, I, well, on the day that she forgave me, I promised her I would do anything that she asked me the rest of our lives together because the forgiveness was so, so powerful. After uh, I had violated our marriage and uh, had experienced uh, that forgiveness, she asked me to begin volunteering at a homeless shelter. This was going to be something, I guess, that would bring us back together. I didn't know at the time. I, I did it reluctantly, but Uh, We showed up at a shelter after she had a dream about a particular homeless man that would change our lives in our city. And she woke me up the next morning and she said, Ron, it was like a verse from Ecclesiastes uh, 9.15, where Solomon said there was found in the city a certain poor man who was wise, and by his wisdom, our city and our lives will be changed. And so she asked me that morning to go with her into the inner city of Fort Worth, Texas, in search for this wise man of her dream. And so that morning, we got in our car and started driving around the inner city because she said in her dream she had actually seen his face. And so she knew that if she saw him, she would know that her dream had actually been from God. And so we began looking for this uh, homeless man in her dream, but we didn't see him. So we stopped later that afternoon and began volunteering at uh, an old rundown homeless shelter in the inner city, Fort Worth. And we'd been there a couple of weeks when uh, serving an evening meal, when all of a sudden uh, in Storm's End, this giant looking man wearing no shirt and no shoes and just some raggedy old unzipped breeches and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm going to kill whoever done it. I'm going to kill whoever stole my shoes. And Debbie said, that's him. And I said, that's who? She said, that's the man in my dream. And then she told me, I believe I heard from God, Ron, that you have to be his friend and find out if my dream was real. And I said, but honey, I was not at that meeting you had with God. And if I'm going to be friends with someone who wants to kill everybody, I think I should talk to God myself. And so that night I went home and I did have a little talk with God. And though I didn't hear an audible voice, I know he told me, he said, Ron, for the forgiveness that Debbie and I have shown you, being friends with a homeless man is a very small price to pay. So that led me on my new path of uh, pursuing friendship with the homeless. Well, the next morning, after I had that talk with God, and after our initial meeting, our <laughs> initial <laughs> encounter with Denver, where he was threatening to kill everyone, uh, Debbie asked me to go in search of him and to um, see if I could get him in my car and take him to have coffee and and find out about him. And uh, she really wanted to know if her dream was real and if this was a poor wise man. And so I began pursuing him at her insistence and for her and for God. And so for the next five months, almost daily, before I would go to my art gallery or go to my job or if I was in town and the city. I would drive into the inner city almost every morning in search of this wise man of her dream. And it took me five months to finally get him in my car. And we go to breakfast one morning. And uh, he says, so what is it that you want from me? And I said, hey, man, I just want to be your friend. He said, well, I've had no peace in my life since you and your wife showed up on the streets of Fort Worth. He said, can't you get control of your woman? He said, y'all are driving me crazy. And I said, well, Noah, as a matter of fact, I can't get control of my woman because she's on a mission from God that we have to be your friends. And so she's told me that I have to be your friend. And so I want to be your friend. And he looked at me with this incredulous look and he said, well, you, you want to be my friend? And I said, that's it straight up, man. There's no other reason for me to be here. But, you know, that was really a lie. I was wanting to be his friend because Debbie was asking me to be his friend. Uh, I mean, I was just so incredulous. I thought, "Hey, buddy, uh, you just looked a gift horse in the mouth." That's an old Texas expression, you know. <laughs> so, you just looked a gift horse in the mouth. You don't know who you're talking to and what I can do for you, because after all, you are the man of my wife's dream, and if she wants you to have some new shoes, and new clothes. I could do that for you. I can get you a new car. I can even get you an apartment or a house. I have the ability and the financial resources to do all of those things for you. And truthfully, you have nothing to offer me. And so you just better behave yourself and be nice. So if you want any of these uh, things that I can do for you, that was the arrogant person in me, thinking that he had absolutely nothing to offer me in a friendship, and that uh, that I would be his benefactor if he cleaned up and behaved himself. He lived by a dumpster in the inner city of Fort Worth, and he was known as suicide on the streets because uh, they said messing with him was the equivalent to committing suicide. And uh, he always carried a baseball bat and that was his form of protection and he didn't, uh, nobody messed with him and really nobody knew his name because he didn't tell anybody his name. And that morning uh, at breakfast, uh, I asked him, I said, "Uh, what is your name? And I said, I know it's not suicide. And he said, well, it ain't none of your business. And I said, well, in case you're wondering, my name is Ron Hall. And uh, he thought about it a second and he looked at me and he said, okay. My name's Denver." And uh, so that's how we got started. And so it was uh, the next day after that meeting, I went to see him at his dumpster, and I took a seat on the curb next to him uh, at a stinking dumpster, and he was dressed in ragged clothes. And I took a seat on what I eventually called uh, the classroom of the University of Denver. He was staring into my eyes and wasn't saying anything, and he was scaring the living daylights out of me because I still believed uh, a man named Suicide. He was dangerous and he was crazy, I thought, and I thought maybe my mind was really so warped about this that I thought that maybe the man of Debbie's dream had been sent by God to kill me as my punishment for being unfaithful ten years earlier because it made no sense to me why I had to be friends with a crazy man on as suicide. And so when he didn't say anything, I took a seat on the curb, but he didn't say anything to me. He just started staring into my eyes with this laser beam drill bit like stare that was just cutting right into uh, my heart and soul. and I was scared. I began shaking. So I just the only thing I could do to break the silence of the moment was ask him a question. And I said, "Hey, what's it like to be homeless?" I guess it must have caught him off guard because he thought about it a second. He said, "Are you one of them Christians?" And I, thinking briefly, maybe he had seen a halo over my head. I thought, "Wow, yes. How did you know?" That's why. I'm, why do you think I'm down here, helping? And he said, "Helping." He said, "If you want to help somebody down here." you got to crawl down in the ditch with them. And when they're strong enough to crawl out on your back, then you helped them. But other than that, you just blessing them. And we appreciate your blessings and thank you for that. God is checking you out to see what kind of person you really are. He said, because most of you folks, y'all look at the homeless as a problem. He said, but through God's eyes, he sees us as an opportunity for the faithful to show the love of Christ because we're all homeless, just working our way home. And I thought, wow, what a brilliant man, (laughs) what insight, what wisdom he had. And My mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of this poor man who was wise, and I knew that I had just a moment to make up my mind. If I ever heard from God in my life, it was at that moment. I know he told me, he said, take a chance and be his friend. And at that moment, God rewrote the story of my life and repainted the canvas of what the rest of my life would look like.
1: As Ron and Denver's relationship began to solidify, Ron received some tough news. His wife Debbie was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Denver became their prayer warrior during the months that followed. Ron shares the heartbreak of his wife's passing and the impact this man, who he once thought had nothing to offer as a friend, became a lifeline as he watched his wife slip away.
2: On the last day of her life, uh, he came to uh, to the house like he had done. The man that I thought had nothing to offer us. For the 19 months that she suffered with her cancer, uh, he would show up at our doorstep every morning. Or at the hospital with a fresh, relevant message that he had gleaned from hours on his knees at night by his dumpster. He stayed up all night long for those 19 months praying and interceding for us. And he would bring us these messages, and not once was he ever wrong. But on the last day of her life, he came to tell us that this was it. This is that God was going to take her home. And uh, so he wanted a few minutes with her. So he he wanted it alone, but he went in and he kneeled beside her bed and he said, "Uh, Miss Debbie, I was talking to God last night and he told me the only reason you've been hanging on so long is because you don't know who's going to take care of the homeless when you pass. He said, but God told me, he said, Denver, you go tell Miss Debbie to lay down her torch and you pick it up, Denver, and you carry it for the rest of your life. And he said, So that's what I'm going to do, Miss Debbie. So she asked him if he would speak at her funeral and share another dream that she had and vision for a new homeless mission in Fort Worth. And uh, when they got through talking, he kneeled beside her bed. And a man who was 16 years old at one time and had been roped and dragged by the Ku Klux Klan for helping a white woman change a flat tire. And the clan had made him promise he would never again speak to a white woman, and he had kept that promise for more than fifty years. He kneeled beside her bed, he kissed her on the forehead, and told her, "Miss Debbie, I'll see you on the other side, and I'll carry your torch." Her final words to me were, "Don't give up on Denver Ron. God is going to bless your friendship in a way that you can never imagine." And with that, you know. A few hours later, she entered the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus saw her face. Soon after helping raise $30 million and building that new homeless mission of Debbie's dream, Denver was honored as the philanthropist of the year in the city of Fort Worth for helping raise that money. Denver and I actually lived together for more than 10 years until he joined Miss Debbie in heaven, and that's those 10 years are more than 10 years. I've written a new book called Working Our Way Home that describes uh, how Denver and I uh, became uh, best friends, closer than brothers, roommates, traveled the world, helping raise nearly $100 million for the homeless all across America. But uh, during those 10 years we lived together, we witnessed so many miracles, but we have to give credit back to where the origin of those miracles came from because they were made possible by just an ordinary woman named Debbie who followed her extraordinary dream. I was reading Jesus Calling this morning, calmly bring these matters to me and leave them in my capable hands. Then simply do the next thing. Stay in touch with me through thankful trusting prayers, resting in my sovereign control, rejoice in me, exult in the God of your salvation, and as you trust in me, I will make your feet like the feet of a deer. I will enable you to walk and make progress upon high places of trouble, suffering, and responsibility. And I'd like to combine that with a verse back from March the 9th from Jesus Calling. It says, the world is a needy place. Do not go there for sustenance. That is, that is wonderful. So many people think they can go to the world as a place uh, to be sustained. But it said, it said instead, come to me and learn to depend on me alone. And your weakness will become saturated with my power. And when you find your completeness in me, you can help other people without using them. To meet your own needs and live in the light of my presence, and your light will shine brightly into the lives of others. You know, what's what? It's crazy. But I witnessed the miracle of a homeless ex con known as Suicide, who did not know how to read and write, become a number one New York Times best selling author. I witnessed uh, Debbie's act of kindness. To an angry homeless loner who spoke to no one except in anger, but how that act of kindness transformed him into a nationally known motivational speaker. But I'll tell you, I know for a fact that her dream of this poor wise man was from God, and it was real because I lived. I'm the only one now, the living witness, to see how so many lives, even our city of Fort Worth, Texas, and now many cities across America have been changed, Uh, brought on really by her forgiveness and her forgiveness that she showed to me, and then an act of kindness that she showed to Denver. My good friend Denver, who was my homeless mentor, he taught me more about life than anyone.
1: Ron and Denver's incredible story is told in full in the movie and book, same Kind of Different as Me," which can be found on Netflix and Amazon. If you'd like to hear more stories about life-changing relationships, check out our interview with Growing Pains actor Jeremy Miller and lifelong friend Dr. Brandon Lane Phillips. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with motivational speaker and best-selling author Dr. Rick Rigsby. Dr. Rigsby is a master communicator whose stories inspire people all over the world with truths from the wisest man he ever met, his father.
2: I go all over the world and tell business people, that which you emulate will be that which you replicate. It comes from a third grade dropout who said, son, you'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. You know what he was really saying to me is how you do anything is how you do everything. It's never wrong to do the right thing. You tell somebody you're going to get there at five, get there at four, be ready to work. That sticks with me to this day. I'm 63 years old. I cannot in any circumstance be late or I'll hear my father's voice.
1: Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you, whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live.